Welcome to Episode 8 of Impact Medicom's podcast series on precision medicine and oncology, the first in a series of episodes focusing on ovarian cancer. In this episode, hosted by Impact Medicom Sarah Desette, we welcome Dr. Janice Kwan, gynecologic oncologist at Vancouver Coastal Health and vice head and professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of British Columbia, as well as Dr. Alon Altman, gynecologic oncologist and professor at the University of Manitoba and the Winnipeg Health Sciences Centre Cancer Care Manitoba. Dr. Kwan serves as chair of both the Priority and Evaluations Committee at BC Cancer and the National BRCA Collaborative. Her expertise is in hereditary cancer syndromes and conducting cost-effectiveness analyses of testing criteria and risk-reducing interventions. Dr. Altman is the president-elect for the Society of Gynecologic Oncology of Canada, the GOC. He is actively involved in multiple other university, national, and international committees, including serving as program director for the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, chair of the University Medical Group, vice chair for the Medical Management of Safety Committee at the Cancer Care Manitoba, and gynecologic oncology track lead for the FIGO 2021 Scientific Planning Committee. In this episode, we discuss the importance of BRCA testing for patients with advanced epithelial ovarian cancer and how national initiatives have helped to improve BRCA testing standards across the country. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, listeners. I'm excited to welcome our guests, Dr. Janice Kwan and Dr. Alon Altman, in the first of a series of podcast episodes on ovarian cancer. So the focus of the discussion today will be on testing for BRCA gene mutations. Uh, so I was hoping one of you could start off by explaining what are the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes and how are they related to cancer risk? Sure. These are genes that all of us have. They're responsible for repairing DNA or damage to DNA, which can occur from all sorts of things from exposure to radiation and other environmental causes. Only a small percentage of us are born with a mutation in one of those genes, um, which would have been inherited from either our mother or father. Um, For those who have a mutation in one of those genes, it puts them at a really high risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer. Why is it important to determine BRCA mutation status in patients with advanced epithelial ovarian cancer? So I guess I'll tackle that one. So um, there's lots of good reasons to determine BRCA mutation status. Um, we know that in ovarian cancer patients, somewhere between 15 and 20% of patients will carry a BRCA mutation, whether that be in their germline or in the tumor itself. And we know that people that have BRCA mutations, um, that affects their treatment selection, their response to treatments, uh, and more specifically, their response to PARP inhibitors. So it's it's become much, much more common for us to to use that as a as a target. And then, of course, the other big reason to test is to find out if this is something that runs in their families. So whether that's a germline mutation, and uh, looking for other relatives or family members that carry the mutation, so that they can get testing or further prophylactic procedures and be aware of that, so that they can kind of move forward with. With their own healthcare plans. And when should BRCA testing be performed? Well, for, for the ovarian cancer patient, it should be done at the initial diagnosis because of the important therapeutic implication that Dr. Altman talked about. And it will also allow unaffected family members to be tested and then undergo risk-reducing 
interventions to prevent the diagnosis of cancer. Is there a preference of what should be tested first? You can test blood samples for hereditary mutations or tuber samples for sporadic mutations. I think this is a tough question. I think people are discussing this all over all over our country and all across the world right now. I think many Canadian centers have switched to tumor testing first to look for mutations. And then if the tumor has a mutation, moving on to blood samples uh, after that. Uh, However, I know that there's still recommendations out there to test the blood sample first and then the tumor and other places the test both at the same time. So I'm not sure there's a specific right or wrong answer. I think many Canadian centres have chosen to do tumor first and then blood, um, but uh, it's done different ways in other places. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's not a, it hasn't been a resolved issue yet, but first of all, to clarify, tumor testing will identify mutations uh, in the tumor that could be either sporadic or inherited. So the only way to confirm this is to follow with, with blood testing. My opinion is that tumor testing should be done first. And this is for a few reasons. Number one, uh, we get the results faster than with conventional germline testing. So we would get the results in, in three to four weeks with tumor testing, which has, again, important implications for treatment, whereas it could take three to four months or even longer for germline testing. Number two, it identifies those with mutations in the, the tumor who would be missed if, if germline testing only was done. And we know that those patients will benefit from treatment with a PARP inhibitor inhibitor. So regardless of whether the mutation is in the tumor or in the blood. Number three, it looks like tumor testing first will be the more efficient and cost-effective way of genetic testing because um, it can select out the patients who don't need the germline or blood testing. And it triages only a small proportion of patients for confirmatory germline testing. So approximately 25% of those who undergo tumor testing will have an abnormality in the tumor. And those are the individuals who should be referred for confirmatory germline testing. On the other hand, if if germline testing is done first, then it identifies the 20% who have a mutation in their germline, but the remaining 80% then have to undergo tumor testing to find the additional 5% or so Uh, of patients who have a mutation in the tumor. So with tumor testing first, there are actually fewer patients who are tested twice. So the cost is going to be reduced when tumor testing is is done first, and it it just becomes more efficient and cost-effective. Yeah, the the add-on to that, I'm so glad to hear that I agree with Dr. Kwan, so that's wonderful. Um, I think the add-on to that is you always have to remember family history and and personal history as well, so that even if the tumor tests negative, if there's a strong enough history in the patient's family or they have a personal history of breast cancer or you're really concerned about some sort of uh, familial cancer, they can still be germline tested. It's not that they can't after somatic testing or, or tumor testing. I agree with that completely. Okay, so is there a rationale then to do both germline and tumor testing in in all patients, or is this just case by case as you described? I I don't think the testing should be done in parallel. I think for the centers that are trying to develop the infrastructure to do tumor testing, it it may make sense to do both in parallel just to validate the, the tumor testing. But once the infrastructure is validated, then I don't think it makes sense to do both at the same time. What will win out is is tumor testing first and then germline testing only for 
um, the 25% or so of, of patients who either have a family history, as Dr. Altman said, or have a mutation in the, in the tumor. If they get referred for germline testing, that's the only way we'll be able to know if the mutation in the tumor is a sporadic event or if it's something that is present in all of the cells. In other words, it's something that's been inherited. Okay, so well, clearly we know that BRCA mutation testing is very important, but what past and current initiatives have really been developed to improve the rate of BRCA testing in patients with uh, advanced epithelial ovarian cancer? Um, well, I can start, and then I'm sure there will be more that that Dr. Quant can add. So I think it depends on on the center. Uh, GOC has been um, pushing quite quite a bit with the uh, um, BRC. BRCA collaborative and the TOT collaborative, BRCA TOT collaborative, and and so kind of coming out with guidelines and recommendations that everybody needs to get tested, everyone should be tested. And I think when we started that, uh, the recommendations was that any high-grade ovarian cancer should have germline testing. So that was uh, certainly where we had started with the initiatives. Um, many centers then moved on to tumor testing, and like Dr. Kwan had said, we're working on getting tumor testing within their labs and coordinating that with their germline testing. And so many places now have reflex tumor testing, which we don't have to think about, uh, which is lovely. There were uh, other labs that had synoptic uh, notifications. So if somebody had a high-grade serous ovarian tumor, they wouldn't automatically test, but there would be a line within the synoptic report reminding people that this is associated with uh, germline mutations and that BRC testing uh, should be included. And then uh, mainstreaming was certainly a, a big run for many places where the oncologists, the gyneocs, the medocs could order uh, the BRC testing ourselves. And so that that kind of unplugged the system of having to wait for genetic counselors and medical geneticists before they got to the testing. Those are the ones that I know of. I don't have much to add except to say that we've come a long way with respect to increasing the eligibility for genetic testing uh, in ovarian cancer. Uh, it used to be uh, based on family history, ethnicity, age at diagnosis. But now, or as of 2019, virtually any woman with an invasive epithelial ovarian cancer, irrespective of age, is, is eligible for genetic testing. So we've certainly expanded the criteria for BRCA mutation testing in the country. Uh, that's been the result of a lot of advocacy work from the GOC. But just because these patients are eligible for genetic testing doesn't necessarily translate into all of them being referred for genetic testing. So Dr. Altman has pointed out some of the strategies that have been used. Um, mainstreaming has been adopted in, in many centers across the country. So that means that the oncologist can initiate the testing process by referring the patient for blood testing and it bypasses the initial consultation with the genetic counselor. So that does make it a little bit more uh, efficient and timely. Not every center yet has adopted reflex tumor testing, but I, I hope that that, uh, that will be achieved um, in the near future. Uh, the GOC has uh, certainly helped in issuing position statements about the importance of germline testing and tumor testing. Some centers have uh, had the privilege of working with nurse navigators to centrally coordinate and arrange follow-up on referrals for genetic testing. 
London, Ontario has adopted a novel approach in which the default is to identify patients uh, through their electronic medical record and automatically refer them for, for genetic testing. But these patients have a limited amount of time to opt out of that uh, referral process. However, I think their experience is that over 90% of, of patients um, did not opt out of the referral. So they chose to go ahead with the genetic testing. What are the challenges in ensuring standards for BRCA testing for ovarian cancer patients are met across Canada? Well, I think one of the I think one of the biggest challenges is funding. Uh, every province, every cancer center works independently. It's not a national federal approach. So, I think that every place has to get all this up and running themselves, which uh, can be a challenge. The the tumor testing can be sent out, but if it's done in house, the lab has to validate the tests and and work through the process. Uh, some of the other challenges are how each province is is set up and where the cancer patients are seen and who sees them. Um, if you're centralized in one tertiary care center where all your gynecologists, medocs are are working together in one room, that is much easier than if you have a more dispersed system uh, like Ontario that has multiple cancer centers working with multiple uh, people across the province. I think that's a challenge. Frankly, just remembering to do it, that's why reflex testing is such an advantage, is that we're not relying on the practitioner themselves to be like, oh yeah, I have to test this patient. I haven't done that. I think we're moving there with reflex testing, but that's one of the reasons reflex testing is is such an important addition to, to where we are. I don't really have anything to add to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the challenges are, uh, yeah, ensuring that all of the centers have access to tumor testing, particularly the the provinces or the centers that don't yet have this infrastructure. I think the second challenge will be ensuring that all patients have the opportunity to be referred for confirmatory germline testing if there is an abnormality identified in, in the tumor. So this will rely on a um, educational process and coordination and follow-up to ensure that um, they're referred and they have that germline testing. I guess one other thing to add is um, cascade testing for those family members who are then identified as having a mutation because it's it's really important for them to be counseled about the importance of risk reduction and they need to be referred for appropriate risk-reducing risk interventions to prevent the diagnosis of cancer. There, there's also the, I think there still remains differences between centers on uh, what testing is done, what panels are included. Uh, BRCA1 and 2, I think, is pretty standard. But, um, you know, tumor testing, I think, for example, uh, I believe ours is still quite limited to BRCA1 and 2, and our mainstreaming is limited to BRCA1 and 2, whereas the full panel done by Medical Genetics is an ex- you know expanded panel of RAD51 and PALP-B and et cetera, you know, all the 16 to 20 to 50 different uh, genes. So oh, Interesting. I didn't realize you were still restricted to mm-hmm. BRCA1 and 2. I think that's different in every province as, as well. So would would detection of mutations in those other genes kind of have a similar value then to looking for BRCA? I think so. There are other genetic mutations that are associated with an increased risk of ovarian cancer. Um, The lifetime risk is not as high as the ovarian cancer risk associated with BRCA1 and 2, 
Um, and, and I don't know if that's the reason why they aren't tested for in, in Manitoba, but certainly uh, for BRCA1 and 2, I think universally across Canada would be eligible. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, they're tested for referral to genetics. They're just not tested for currently with, with our mainstreaming or, or um, with the tumor panel. But I agree, they would be very useful because I think a lot of those genes also fall under the homologous recombination deficiency umbrella which we know has a benefit and there's still genes that can be passed on and, and carried in families. So it still affects family members, even if it's not BRCA one or two. So do you think there are any additional steps that need to be taken to improve access to BRCA testing, or I guess, testing for other genes uh, that predispose a person to ovarian cancer? Well, as Dr. Altman said, funding is really critical, but advocating for centers that that don't have this testing. So this obviously means discussions with administration and policymakers to provide the funding that's needed to support the infrastructure and the the personnel who are required to uh, to do this testing. And then getting down into the trenches and finding out what the barriers are at various institutions. So you talked a lot about uh, the Society of Gynecologic Oncology of Canada Canada's kind of role in uh, moving forward BRCA testing. Can you kind of talk about how other disease areas maybe can learn from the success story there? I think what we can say is that, you know, the GOC is is a relatively small society. We all know each other quite well. We're, we're quite close-knit. And um, um, so when when we come up with an idea for something that we think would benefit a patient, it's quite easy to get people from all across the country on board. So I think that was probably a big thing for us was that we came up thinking about this BRCA story and what we wanted. And it was quite easy to get ovarian cancer experts, not just within gynae oncology, but from medoc, from, I guess, radiation oncology doesn't treat ovarian cancer that much, but medical genetics. And like we were able to mobilize the ovarian cancer force quite quite well. Um, and I think that's kind of the nature of our small, close-knit society, which is which I don't know is a lesson learned. I just don't know how other societies are structured. So uh, I'm sure other societies have, you know, uh, similar structures and, and, and can do that. So it's reaching out for help to other groups and multidisciplinary approaches and reaching out across the country to uh, your friends and colleagues uh, to say, hey, this is what we want to do. How do we do this? So I think that was, that was, my, that was my impression anyways. Yeah, I, I agree with Dr. Almi. He's so sensible. That's why he's going to be our next president. Uh, this has really been a team sport. We have members from a number of stakeholder organizations, as Dr. Altman said, medical oncology, pathology. We have nursing, genetic counselors. Um, and we also have a, a very important patient partner, Ovarian Cancer Canada. And uh, the members on the BRCA Collaborative are all leaders in their respective fields. So we rely on them to lobby their own membership for support and uh, as well as administration for funding. Uh, We have a vision and we've used the moniker No Woman Left Behind repeatedly. Uh, We communicate frequently. We advise one another. We're not afraid to speak up or ask for advice. Uh, So the term collaborative in the National BRCA Collaborative is really an essential element of our lexicon. 
Great. That's great. Thanks so much uh, for being on the episode today. And we'll hope we get to talk to you again soon. Thanks. Thank you. 